Next case for argument, <clears throat> case number 22-1683 from South Dakota, Lonnie Two Eagle Sr. versus United States. Mr. LaFleur. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, counsel. On August 5, 2019, Chad Sully, a cook for the Rosebud Indian Health Services Hospital, ran over 71-year-old Lonnie Two Eagle while Mr. Two Eagle was operating a riding lawnmower. Mr. Two Eagle was a maintenance worker for the Rosebud Sioux Tribe Water Resources Department, which was located adjacent to the hospital complex. And as a matter of fact, was part of the hospital complex until the IHS surrendered five acres of its lease to, lo to locate that facility, that, that facility there. Um, after the accident, Mr. Two Eagle was hospitalized for 350 days in Rapid City and in hospitals here in Lincoln. He lost a lower leg. He now incurs dialysis three times a week. He gets around by walker and or wheelchair and relies on his family for his basic needs day in and day out. He has incurred over $6 million in medical expense. A very tragic, tragic situation. The Getting back to the day of the incident and what brought this uh, tragedy to take place, uh, Chad Sully, the cook for the hospital, he had a history of seizures. He had a history, he, he had a seizure on January 13, 2019. He had a seizure on March 12, 2019. He had a series of seizures on April 12, 2019. He was treated by a telemedicine neurologist, Dr. Matthew Smith, on April 16, 2019. Does the it, record reflect where Dr. Smith was when he was on the teleconference or whatever it is, where he was physically seated? Uh, I know the teleconference is wherever it is. But. I don't think it does, but I think he's, he's from Macon, Georgia. Okay, thank you. Okay. So probably not in South Dakota. I don't believe he was in South yeah, Dakota, right. Your Honor. Proceed. His deposition is scheduled in another suit, though, upcoming. Okay. Proceed. Um, so, on April 16th, on August 16th, I'm sorry, April 16th, Dr. Smith directs Sully, no driving till six months have elapsed from your last seizure. On July 23rd, there was another telemedicine visit. And at that time, Dr. Smith mistakenly, inaccurately, represents that the last seizure was in February and released him to drive commencing in August. And as we've indicated, five days later, this tragedy happens where he's driving near the hospital, runs over Mr. Uh, Two Eagle after suffering a seizure. The, I think it's important also that this uh, medical facility, the hospital complex, is isolated from the rest of the community. There's a road called Hospital Drive 
that extends for a quarter of a mile to a half a mile, which is the sole access for the uh, workers and for the patients to, to attend meetings at the, or uh, appointments at the hospital. But it is a public road, not on the hospital's premises, right? No, I, I think th there's a road that circles the hospital that is on the leased property for the IHS. So there are boundaries. Part of the road is not on the leased property. Thank you. I think that's accurate. Thank Council, you. Council, didn't district court, didn't district court uh, conclude that it was not on hospital property? The didn't, district. Did, that was a conclusion of the district court, correct? The district court found as a fact that the where Mr. Two Eagle was struck right. was not on the leased property. Are you trying to say otherwise in your argument here? We well, what happened is we have maps, aerial maps with lines drawn on it. We don't have a survey done, but I believe from the aerial map that where he was struck uh, could have been on the water resources lawn. But where the vehicle ended up with the lawnmower still attached to the front of it was on the IHS leased property. There's clear from the, mm -hmm. so race geste, it's all, so it's a mix potentially because we really don't know without a survey to know exactly where he was struck. How do we get past what the district court concluded, which it was, what, that which was that it was not on hospital property? I mean, we well, I that know you have an impression otherwise, but I'm not sure that's good enough. What I'm asking is this, is that that's a finding of fact, and when we have to find that it's clearly erroneous, and your description doesn't sound like clearly erroneous to me. Well, if, if there isn't a, a survey, I don't know how you make the finding of fact for sure. Well, who, you're, has, you're the basing who it, has the burden of proving that? Well, the, the burden of establishing jurisdiction is on the plaintiff. I recognize that, Your Honor. Um, what... Our first argument, we contend, is that the district court erred in dismissing under 12b-1. Mm -hmm. This court has, in Osborne versus U.S. and Johnson versus U.S. has cited Williamson versus Tucker. The, the Williamson versus Tucker case cites the United States, 1946 United States Supreme Court case of, of Bell versus Hood. The court held in Williamson that the United States Supreme Court has enunciated a strict standard for dismissals for lack of subject matter jurisdiction when the basis of jurisdiction is also an element of the plaintiff's federal cause of action. Really, the only issue in this case is scope of employment. And what about negligence? Is it negligence an issue? I don't. I can't imagine that negligence is going to be an issue in well, this you case. Pl you plead negligence well, though, right? It, negligence has been pled, but well, that's gotta be he, ran him, he ran the guy over and there has no, the only thing he could raise is a medical emergency. Yeah, but it, it's an element, you just say it's not a very good element for the right. defense. Right, I mean, right? the, the real issue. But it's an element. Negligence has to be part of the. It is an element. Yeah, proceed. Let's talk about the scope of employment if you don't mind. Um, you know, uh, Sully's a cook, and Sully was gone for lunch. Sully comes back for lunch. He has a seizure, and he uh, drives over the, the defendant, causing terrible and, and unbelievable injury. Um, what 
was the purpose of the employer that was being served uh, at that moment by Sully such that it doesn't fall under the going and coming rule? The going and coming rule applies, but not once you reach the hospital complex or the sole access to the hospital com complex. But he's still so just driving his car to work. He's just going and coming. Well, isn't he? Or why isn't he going and coming at that point? Because he's driving to work, right? That's the whole purpose of the. It's, it's the purpose is, is not to stick the United States government with tort liability for people who are commuting to and from work. Now it sounds, it looks to me like what this guy did is he left the premises to go eat lunch, and he's coming back from lunch. Looks a lot like a commuting uh, uh, scenario to me, um, but it may not be. There may be some. Uh, some, he may be a, about his master's business, as we used to say in the old days, uh, at that point, doing something. But, but what is that? Because it doesn't seem to be pled. The, the distinguishing <coughs> facts about this particular case is that, one, Mr. Soli was on the, was on the clock. Mm -hmm. He gets a half an hour, and he, clearly he was on the clock at the time of this incident. Number two that this is on the premises, it, it's an isolated spot. It's not like it's out in the, the public. For example, the government argues that um, he wasn't within the scope of employment because he was visiting the post office or he was taking a nap on his couch. Well, he wasn't taking a nap on the couch or visiting the post office at this time. Consider this, if you, if you will, please. What, I, what came to mind that made sense to me, let's assume that Mr. Sully walked through the door of the hospital, hadn't got to the kitchen, wasn't over the stove, wasn't doing his duties as a cook, but he's not paying his attention and he runs into an elderly patient and an elderly patient falls and gets hurt, a head injury or a, or a hip injury. Well, is he within the scope of employment under that situation? He hasn't got to the kitchen, but obviously he was there incidental to his work as a cook. Well, Just like, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but th doesn't the Tamman case control this case? The Tamman, South Dakota Supreme Court case, just well, a year ago. But I mean, that's what we're distinguishing from Tamman versus Tronbull was that in our situation, in, in Tamman versus Tronbull, the worker was a volunteer fireman, and he was coming. He lived ten miles away from Pier, and he was coming to Pier to attend a monthly training meeting. So that situation is a far cry from our situation where we have a hospital complex that is isolated from the rest of the community. He has gotten to the hospital complex and this incident happens. And so what I'm saying is that does it make a difference that it happens inside the door when he hasn't reached to the kitchen or it happens well, I think where it happens is a factor. As you know, this is a multi-factor test. And it seems to me the bottom line of the Tamman case is do the risk and hazards, their words, risk and hazards of the commute originate in the work of the employer or are they the risk of hazards, risk and hazards to which all members of the traveling public are subject? But Isn't that the real rule from Tamman? I mean, that is the rule, okay, Your Honor. Tell me how it applies to this case. Yeah, it doesn't apply to this case factually. I, we're making factual distinctions because he has reached the hospital complex. Well, for example, in, in the example I gave where he walked through the door, you know, he, how is that 
helping the employer when he hasn't actually got to his cooking spot. What I think is that when there's that incidental to the employment, which the only reason he signed, Mr. Soley signed a declaration indicating that the only reason he was in the spot where he was was incidental to his work as a cook for the IHS hospital, Your Honor. And I think that distinguishing factor is very important. Um, now, by the way, the district court again said he was not in the clock, right? Didn't the district court make up? I'm not into your rebuttal, so you can't answer quickly. Did, yes or no, for your benefit, did the district court make a finding that Sully was not on the clock? I think the district court made a finding that it didn't matter to the district okay. court. Thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll reserve. Yes. Ms. Hoffman. May it please the court and my friend and colleague, Mr. Lefebvre. Chad Sully was not acting within the scope of his employment at the time of the accident. Mr. Two Eagles, count one in Mr. Two Eagles' complaint alleges that Mr. Sully was negligent in operating his motor vehicle while acting within the scope of his employment at the Rosebud IHS Hospital. Mr. Sully was employed as a cook in the kitchen, and his work was performed in the kitchen. His duties included the planning, preparing, and coordinating of meals, and his duties did not include operating a motor vehicle. Mr. Sully, while at the time of the accident, Mr. Sully was on his lunch break and returning back to work at the hospital. Late, right? It's undeniable he was late? No, Your Honor. I thought I the district court found he was late. Well, I believe what the district court stated was that that's irrelevant to the scope of employment analysis. In fact, the finding by the magistrate court, which was adopted by the district court, was that Mr. Sully left from his lunch break at 1 p.m., and that's pursuant to his sworn declaration. And the accident was reported at 1.41 p.m. to EMS. Now, also, Mr. Sully's supervisor has stated under oath that when an employee such as Mr. Sully is working a double shift, they receive 45 minutes for a lunch break. So even under the facts of this case, the accident occurred while Mr. during the allowed time for Mr. Sully's lunch break. But the court basically said whether the accident occurred during the time allowed Mr. Sully for his lunch break or whether he was late returning to the hospital is irrelevant to the scope of employment analysis. At the time of the accident, Mr. Sully was on his lunch break and returning to the hospital. While on his lunch break, Mr. Sully drove home, and he was driving his personal vehicle, by the way, drove home, took a nap, stopped at the post office to check his personal mail. Mr. Sully's actions served solely his own interests and did not further the interests of the hospital. Therefore, under the facts of this case, Mr. Sully's actions were not within the scope of employment. Mr. Two Eagle argues that Mr. Sully was acting within the scope of his employment because he was paid during his lunch break. The record does not support this argument, as previously stated in the facts. But furthermore, under Office of Personnel Management policy, a lunch or other meal period is an approved period of time in a non-work and non-pay status. Second, Mr. Sully was not paid for his time spent traveling to and from work. He was paid 
to cook in the kitchen. Finally, as I indicated earlier, the district court found that whether the accident occurred within the time allowed for his accident during, during his lunch break, uh, but that's irrelevant to the scope of employment analysis. The district court, however, held as a matter of law that Mr. Sully was not acting within the scope of his employment under the going and coming rule. The going and coming rule precludes an employer's liability as a matter of law when an employee is going to or from work. This is because when employees travel to or from work, they are deemed to be acting within their own per for their own personal interests, free of constraints by the employer as to the methods or means of commute. Thus, the two key questions that must be analyzed in this case are one, whether the hospital had control over Mr. Sully's commute, and two, whether the hospital derived a benefit from Mr. Sully's commute. In this case, the hospital did not have any control over Mr. Sully's commute. The hospital did not provide Mr. Sully a vehicle, did not re reimburse him for his commute, and did not control the means by which he arrived at the hospital. Counsel, what about the argument, uh, or the derivation of the argument made by opposing counsel, your opposing counsel in this case, well, what, if, uh, uh, what if the individual was coming back to work to be a cook, and he got into the hospital and ran over someone while he was walking from the front door to his station as being a cook, that would seem to me like, well, are we in the scope of employment? Why is that, why, why would that not be different than this situation where he's almost there, he almost got there, he, he's driving back, and the difference between walking from the front door to his uh, station, maybe your answer is there's no difference. And I want to hear your answer on that. I think it's similar to what Judge Erickson pointed out is you know, he's actually in his car. He's actually driving to the car, which clearly puts it within the going and coming rule. Once he's exited his vehicle and he's, he's entered the hospital property, I think that's a distinguishing fact. He's now subject to the control of, of his employer when he's physically in the hospital um, about to engage in his, his services as a cook. Does South Dakota ever mention a portal-to-portal -portal rule or anything like that? I cannot, to be honest, I don't have an answer to that question, but I would point out when we're talking about these exceptions, these premises exceptions, access exceptions to the going and coming rule, that the South Dakota Supreme Court, which is controlling uh, in Tamman, cautioned against expanding liability beyond the going and coming rule in respondeat superior cases. As stated by the court in Tamman, respondeat superior requires a narrower construction of an employee's scope of employment by focusing on whether the employer had control over the employee or received a benefit from the employee's act. The court further stated exceptions to the going and coming rule spring from the employer's exertion of some control over the employee's actions and a palpable benefit to be reaped, thus placing the conduct back in the vicarious liability construct. Was all that a quote, counsel? Uh, yes, and I would refer the court to okay. Tam 965 Northwest 2nd at 173. Yeah, it looks like at 172, paragraph 31 at Tamman, that the Supreme Court quotes a Colorado opinion, uh, Stakes versus Denver newspaper agency, which is a portal-to-portal -portal case with, uh, it appears to cite it favorably. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, the exceptions language is at TAM and one's page 172, and the discussion about 
a respondeat superior requiring a narrower construction of an employee scope of employment by focusing on control is at page 173. Thank you, Judge Erickson. I'd further note that the United States Supreme Court in the case of Cardia versus Liberty, let, let me, uh, I, I would further note that the United States Supreme Court has likewise urged careful construction of the nature and circumstances surrounding a worker's employment before expanding uh, liability beyond the going and coming rule. Boy, that doesn't bind the state Supreme Court, right, counsel? Well, By the way, by the way FTCA is, is worded, proceed. Yes, uh, Tamman actually cites the case of Cardillo, Cardillo uh, versus Liberty yeah. Mutual Insurance Company with approval. Uh, and in that case, the Supreme Court observed that injuries occurring during an employee's commute are said not to rise out of and in, in the course of employment, rather they arise out of the ordinary hazards of the journey, hazards that all travelers face, and hazards which are unrelated to the employer's business. Accordingly, the South Dakota Supreme Court in Tamman uh, held that exceptions to the going and coming rule should relate to situations where the hazards may fairly be regarded as hazards of the service. Certainly in this case, the hazards of uh, Mr. Sully's journey may not be fairly regarded as hazards of his service as a cook in the kitchen at the hospital. In this case, the hospital did not have control over Mr. Sully's commute or receive a sufficient benefit from his commute to warrant expanding liability beyond the going and coming rule. And along those lines, I'd like to point out that the only benefit received by the hospital was Mr. Sully returning to work. That's the only benefit, which the court in Tamman held was insufficient to place an employee's uh, commute within the scope of his employment. In fact, that's no different than any, any, employee, any employer receiving a benefit from the regular, uh, you know, an employee showing up to work on any given day. And to apply the, uh, to, to determine that Mr. Soley was acting within the scope of his employment under the facts of these cases would truly render the going and coming rule meaningless. Count two of Mr. Two Eagle's complaint alleges that the hospital was negligent in the hiring and hiring, training, supervision, screening, and retention of Mr. Sully. That the FDCA does not waive the immunity of the United States for the exercise or performance or the failure to exercise or perform a discretionary duty, uh, function or duty on the part of a federal agency or an employee of the government, whether or not the involved discretion be abused. And importantly, the court should note that discretionary function exception shields the United States from liability even if the government's act, government employees' actions were negligent. Under the discretionary fun, function exception, the court must determine whether there is a federal statute, rate, regulation, or agency directive that specifically prescribes a course of conduct for the employee to follow. When no such mandate exists, the governmental action is considered to be the product of judgment or choice. Mr. Two Eagle cites no federal statute, regulation, or agency directive uh, that mandates any specific conduct by William, uh, William Wannenberg, Mr. Sully's supervisor. Mr. Two Eagle, however, argues that Dr. Smith's instruction to Mr. Sully not to drive until six months seizure free 
mandated that Mr. Wannenberg take action to prevent Mr. Sully from driving to and from work. Dr. Smith's medical advice is not a federal statute, regulation, or agency directive. Therefore, Mr. Wannenberg's supervision of Mr. Sully was a matter of judgment and choice and falls within the discretionary function exception. How would the, uh, just this is an aside, but how would the employer ever know in this day and age of HIPAA that there were such restrictions? I mean, it's like, I don't know, my doctor doesn't uh, um, call up uh, whoever my boss is in St. Louis and tell them that I've got this problem or that problem shouldn't do something. I agree, uh, Your Honor. In fact, uh, not only would it be a HIPAA violation, but I believe that epilepsy disorder would actually qualify as a disability under the ADA. And uh, for the employer to inquire under the facts and circumstances of this case would likely be an ADA violation. Uh, Counsel, but in this case, my recollection of the record was that it really wasn't disputed that Wannenberg knew about the seizure issue with his employee that he was working of, of, uh, of his employee, of Sully. That's unclear. Okay. Uh, the Mr. Wannenberg is essentially the dietitian supervises the kitchen. Uh, we, a week prior, approximately a week, and it's in my brief, I don't have the exact dates, but a week prior to Mr. Sully's initial consult with the neurologist, Dr. Smith, there was a meeting and a discussion about a ketogenic diet. It's very unclear that uh, Mr. Wannenberg had any details about Mr. Sully's condition, and it wasn't until a week later that uh, Mr. Sully was treated by the neurologist and told at that time not to drive until six months seizure-free. But did Wannenberg know that Sully had seizure problems at the time of this accident? That's the question I have for you. Is that in the record? Uh, but don't think that's, well. declaration of Mr. Wannenberg, and that's at the joint uh, appendix at page 38. Counsel, I, I could look that up. Okay, very good. Your time, so. Thank you. So because the supervision of Mr. Sully was a matter of judgment and choice, it falls within the discretionary function exception. Furthermore, issues of, the of an employee's supervision and retention generally involve the permissible exercise of policy judgment and fall within the discretionary function exception. Counsel, just since your time is running out, I have a quick question yes. on, Mr. on Dr. Smith. He yes. may have been in Georgia or somewhere else. All right. Uh, the appellant points out that the telemedicine agreement required Dr. Smith to abide by the hospital's policies and procedures. And why don't those his requirement to follow those policy and procedures illustrate the hospital had control over Dr. Smith's day-to-day -day working life? Uh, first of all, Article 7.3 uh, governs the credentialing and privileging decision by the telemedicine entity. And what that provision states, and I quote, the IHS has an internal, re uh, those requirements include that the IHS hospital has an internal review of the distance site telemedicine entity's provider's performance and provides this information to the distance site telemedicine entity, in this case, Avera. It goes on to say, state that at a minimum, what, what, what must be provided is that all adverse events and complaints regarding telemedicine services provided by the distance site telemedicine entity provider be provided 
to Avera for credentialing and privileging decisions. That does not give the hospital the ability to uh, control the detailed performance of Dr. Smith and the performance of his duties under the contract. Okay. With that, counsel, your time has expired, and we thank you for the argument. Very good. I would just state for the foregoing reasons that the United States respectfully requests this court to affirm the decision of the district court. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. LaFleur, rebuttal argument. I, I want to address the uh, standard under the 12B1 dismissal uh, and get back to what the United States Supreme Court said in Bell versus Hood. The Supreme Court has enunciated a strict standard for dismissals for lack of subject matter jurisdiction when the basis of jurisdiction is also an element of the plaintiff's federal cause of action. Scope of employment was both the jurisdictional basis and an element of the uh, plaintiff's federal cause of action. And under that rule, the, the, the rule, um, the previously carved out exceptions that a suit may sometimes be dismissed for want of jurisdiction where the alleged claim under the Constitution our federal statutes clearly appears to be immaterial and made solely for the purpose of obtaining jurisdiction or where such claim is wholly insubstantial or frivolous. Now, neither one of those apply. Clearly, Excuse me, counsel, but uh, it seems to me that the McGee from case in 2021 and the Johnson case from 08, doesn't that just directly gut your argument? No, it doesn't because what happened in, in Johnson and in McGee, in, in Johnson, this worker was coming from <coughs> Fort Yates down to Mulbridge and made a, a arrest that he had no authority to make, completely distinct from our situation. And in McGee, the postal worker was on a break who had left his route, even though the postal service had strict rules on what that post could do or not do. So this, uh, what the point I'm making is that with the standard that's been set by the United States Supreme Court, that this case, because there is an overlap of the facts related to the jurisdiction and the facts of the merit of the case, should require a dismissal, uh, or avoid a dismissal under 12b1 and hear the case on the merits. That, that's the, the main thing I wanted to raised to this court in the rebuttal. I would say that um, there was an indication that uh, Mr. Wannenberg allowed a 45 minute break rather than a 30 minute break. But if you look at the addendum to the reply brief, which is an email from uh, Mr. Wannenberg, the day after this happened, he indicates in that, that it was a 30 minute break. Uh, thank you very much. I, Appreciate it and uh, request that the court reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel, for your arguments. Case number 22-1683 is submitted for decision by the court. Ms. McKee, does that end the docket? Yes, it is, Your Honor.